attributes of the Son of God, how he, exist, how he had existed forever, and how he entered as a helpless newborn infant into the world, the same world that he created. But also this world failed to recognize him, and his own people, the Jewish people, rejected him. But verse 12 of, that, of 1 John's, John 1 says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We are not studying John 1 today. Uh, we're studying 1 Corinthians 1. But we're going to take time to explore God's wise plan in how he sent Jesus to be our Savior and also how we become children of God from God's viewpoint. So we're going to start by looking at the setting of 1 Corinthians. And Paul, he's writing here to the church in Corinth. Corinth is a small town in modern-day Greece, but during the time of the Roman Empire, it was actually a thriving economic center located in a strategic area. The church in Corinth was founded by Paul during his second missionary journey. Paul stayed in Corinth for about two years while he founded this church, and after Paul left, there was another missionary, Apollos, who actually came to continue to strengthen the church. It's likely that Peter and his wife also visited this church at some point, if you'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. The church in Corinth was immature. It was heavily influenced by the surrounding pagan culture. At the time Paul wrote this letter, he was living across the sea in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, and Paul heard that prideful factions had developed in this church, and they were following one human teacher or another. Um, And there were a few other problems as well. But in this letter... Paul is going to confront the Corinthian church for their disunity, for focusing on external practices like baptism instead of in the gospel, and by focusing on human leaders instead of God himself. So we're going to cover this passage today and see that Paul emphasizes one thing, the crucified Messiah. So starting in verse 17, Paul is going to make an interesting claim that God's power that's demonstrated in the gospel will actually be lost or obscured if human wisdom or eloquence takes center stage instead of God himself. This divide between God's wisdom and man's wisdom is the context for our passage today. So, would you follow along with me again as I read 1 Corinthians 17 through 31? For Christ did not send me to baptize, Paul says, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of this discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Lord, thank you for inspiring Paul to write this letter to the Corinthians. Thank you that the good news of the crucified Christ was not just good news 2,000 years ago, but it's still good news for us today. I pray that as I preach here that the focus would not be on me, that would not be on any human wisdom, but that the focus would be on you and your glory as expressed in your son Jesus. pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say in this passage today, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to divide this passage into three different sections. First, we're going to start with verse 17 to 19, and then we'll take verse 20 through 25, and verse 26 through 31. The first passage, or first section, I've titled, God's wisdom is displayed in the crucified Messiah. Verse 17 is providing our lead-in for this passage. In In verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of of its power. Here, Paul is responding to the Corinthian church and their fights over following one human leader or another. The Corinthians might assume that Paul actually wants to be followed, that people he wants a following, but instead, Paul here highlights that he has a commission from Christ to preach the gospel. What is the gospel? Let's take time to define that. Paul will describe in chapter 15 of the same letter, 1 Corinthians, that the gospel is Christ's crucifixion for our sins, his burial, his resurrection, and by this message we are saved if we receive it by faith. Preaching this message of the crucified Christ is Paul's mission, but Paul singles out eloquent wisdom as something that actually takes away from the gospel's power. What is Paul meaning by eloquent wisdom? Paul here is referring to a practice of public oratory. In Greek culture, there'd be crowds that would gather to listen to philosophers, professional speakers who would debate and speak. These speakers traveled the world all through Rome, Greece, uh, Turkey, to entertain and instruct their audiences with their skills in rhetoric, persuasion, trying to convince people of better ways to live or how to be successful in life. Unlike this method of human persuasion, Paul will actually refer in the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, to say that he intentionally did not use this approach with the Corinthians when he first came to them. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is verse 1 through 5 of chapter 2. 
Paul goes on to say, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and a power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's likely that execution by crucifixion also wasn't a very popular or showy topic. Um, And in the next verse, verse 18, Paul is going to give his thesis statement for this passage. This is what verse 18 says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul's making a sweeping claim that this uncomfortable message, maybe unpopular message of the crucified Christ, the crucified Messiah, actually causes two different responses. One, it will be seen by those who are headed for destruction as foolishness. It will be seen by those who are saved, however, as the power of God. This verse may remind you of a passage that we just talked about with Pastor Rob going through the first part of Romans that focuses on believers and their response to God's power shown in the gospel. This is Romans 1.16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But here to the first Corinthians, instead of only focusing on the reaction of believers, Paul also explains that the same gospel separates the saved from the perishing. Think of it this way. Can you guys picture a wedge, like a wedge that you'd use to chop wood? The gospel is a wedge. It's dividing the world into two different groups of people based on their response to Christ. Again, the hearer is the the pure who is perishing will see the gospel as foolishness. The hearer who is being saved will see it as the power of God. So, instead of the Corinthians who were fixated on human speaking ability, Paul here explains that the message of the gospel is what matters. It's not whether the preacher is persuasive or not. The messenger is not the factor. Rather, the message is what's important. And some people will automatically accept it because of God's work, and some will reject it. So what have we learned so far? It's that God is working his salvation power through this crude message of Christ's crucifixion, his death on the cross, and not through human persuasion. Now we're going to look at the next verse, verse 19. Paul now gives immediate support for this claim that God is working his salvation power through the gospel by quoting Isaiah 29.14 in verse 19. This is evidence that God will destroy the world's plans and intellect. Verse 19 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This theme of God's superior wisdom might also remind you of another passage, Isaiah 55, where it says in verse 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We're going to pause here for a minute and think about these verses. So through this whole section, actually even verse chapters 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians, A major theme is that God's wisdom is expressed in Jesus. 
and that God also prevails over human wisdom. The basic gospel of Jesus on the cross is not only to be seen as God's power to us who are being saved, but also an obstacle for the unbelieving world. The passage also reminds us that the gospel in its simplicity cannot be improved upon. Humans can't make the facts of the gospel seem more appealing to, a, to the human world without losing the power of God that is at work in it. And human thinking cannot see the gospel as the profound truth from God that it really is. How does this impact us 2,000 years later in Lincoln, Nebraska? First, human teachers and influencers, philosophers, even if they're Christians and even if their teaching is true, cannot replace God and his wisdom. We cannot replace the message of Christ or God's spirit working in our lives. This was a struggle for the Corinthian church, and it can be a struggle for us too. So, who do you spend most of your time listening to? What authors do you read? Where do you get your perspectives on God or on life from? What human leaders do you associate with? Are any of these human leaders replacing your reliance on God and the message of Christ? Or your identification with Jesus? In addition, how much emphasis do you put on human wisdom? Are these things idols for you? Education. Human opinion and approval. Aspiring to cultural ideas about wealth, status, or significance. Are you willing to look foolish to the world by putting less emphasis on these things and pursuing Jesus instead? Our next section is verse 20 through 25. I've titled this, God Opens Eyes to See the Wisdom of Christ. Starting in verse 20, Paul asks four rhetorical questions here. Four rhetorical questions to draw attention to the fact that God's wisdom is higher than man's wisdom. It says in verse 20, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? How is God going to destroy the wisdom of the world's wise? We're going to read the next verse, and it will tell us. Verse 21 here explains that God's eternal plan in his design of the gospel is actually something that's going to subvert the world's ways of thinking. Verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. There's a lot packed in there, so we're just going to dive right in. Paul explains that God made a wise plan. What was this plan? God designed things to work in such a way that the world, that is us humans on our own, would not be able to know him on our own through our own intellect. Instead, God made it so that people would come to know him by believing a very simple, crude, and even foolish message. And this message actually must be communicated by weak human messengers in order for people to be saved. This is God's eternal plan, to show his wisdom and to show the foolishness of mankind, and he's going to reveal it to all his creation. 
Not only is this gospel, therefore, a wedge that's dividing the, the saved and the perishing, but God is actually the blacksmith who made the wedge of the gospel, and he's also the hammer that's driving this wedge of the gospel for his own purposes. The next verse, verse 22, Paul will highlight two different groups of people, and he's going to make generalizations about what they're looking for in the pursuit of truth. Verse 22 says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. The Jewish people were known for looking for miraculous signs from God to validate his power and authorize his messengers. So if you think about the Pharisees and their demands about Jesus, a lot of them revolved around signs. Prove to us who you are. Show us through a miracle. On the other hand, the Greeks, the non-Jewish people, were known to look for wisdom. As we saw earlier, the Greeks in antiquity valued reason and philosophy, and they considered themselves cultured versus the barbarian third world countries around them. Does that sound like anyone? Uh, that sounds like America to me. In verse 23, Paul explains that the message he preaches of the crucified Messiah is not automatically received well either by the Jews or by the Greeks or by the Gentiles. Verse 23 now says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now let's not get confused here. Unbelief is always the underlying reason why people reject Jesus. But unbelief takes different forms. And as we see here, the gospel, the form of unbelief, is often as a stumbling block to them. That is, the humiliating crucifixion of their Messiah seems offensive to Jews, and it's a major component of their unbelief. Even Peter, if you remember, in Matthew 16.22, when Jesus tells him about the cross, Paul rebuked Jesus for that. He actually says, how dare you even consider this type of thing? In 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8, Peter responds now as a believer by describing how unbelieving Jews continue to reject Jesus. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So meanwhile, slightly different than the Jews, the Gentiles see the gospel as folly, as foolishness. It's foolish to them that God would come to earth in human form to shamefully die for our sins and then rise again? John MacArthur writes that God would take human form, be crucified and raised in order to provide for man's forgiveness of sin and entrance into heaven is an idea far too simple, foolish, and humbling for the natural man to accept. That one man, even the Son of God, could die on a piece of wood on a nondescript hill in a nondescript part of the world and thereby determine the destiny of every person who has ever lived seems stupid. It allows no place for man's merit, man's attainment, man's understanding, or man's pride. The word of the, this word of the cross is foolishness. foolishness. It is moronic, absolute nonsense to unbelievers who rely on their own wisdom. This is exactly what Paul experienced when he went to Mars Hill. The Greeks in Athens, when they heard him talk about Jesus, what did they do? They mocked him. 
This is also common for us in Western culture, at least it has been in, in recent decades. And in verse 24, Paul will now shift the focus away from these different negative responses to the gospel from these unbelieving Jews and Gentiles, and now he's going to focus instead on a different third group of people. This group, he's going to refer to those as those who are called. Verse 24 says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Here Paul clarifies that there is a dividing line of response to Jesus, and it's based in God's call. God's call, his effective voice, is bringing out a separate people. This third group is coming from both Jews and Gentiles, and they're going to have a separate response to Christ and toward his crucifixion. Those who are called by God are the ones who will experience Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we're going to unpack these terms a little bit later. In verse 25, Paul now concludes the set of verses by reflecting again on God's wisdom and strength and how it's in a different league than humans' own abilities, saying, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's take some time now and reflect on these verses, verse 20 through 25. What do these verses show us? They show us that humans, we by our own nature, don't see the news as a crucified Jesus as wise or as powerful. Instead, God intervenes. He calls people from among the nations to see Christ for who he really is. And God, in his eternal wisdom, planned for this message of the crucified Savior to require us to get wisdom from him in order to understand it. The reason, this is the reason why the crucified Messiah appears to the perishing as foolish or offensive, while to those who are being saved, it appears as the power of God. This passage has a lot of implications for those of us in evangelism and all of us who want to be a witness to our unbelieving friends and family. Lost my train of thought here. It shows us that God planned the gospel to be incomprehensible or even offensive when approached from human perspective. So, that may cause us to ask ourselves, why doesn't God's demonstration of power through signs and miracles automatically convince unbelievers of the gospel? The Jews were looking for this after all, and it is true that non-believers can see God's power at work. Those experiences help them consider the truth of God for example, 2,000 years ago when Jesus was on earth, he did do signs and there were people who believed that he was a prophet as a result. Today, some also may be convinced that God exists by seeing his miraculous intervention in their lives. Meanwhile, the way we live as Christians, such as our love for one another, also points to the power of God at work in our hearts. Think about the Sermon on the Mount, the city on a hill. But these signs don't automatically cause unbelievers to diligently seek God. Seeking God is a paradigm shift. Seeking God requires a different viewpoint for us because it's not natural for us humans to worship God in spirit and in truth, and this actually requires intervention from God in our lives. 
In the next chapter, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul will talk a lot more about God's role in opening our eyes to see true wisdom. Besides the evangelism side, we can also ask in how God can reveal himself through power. We may also ask, why doesn't God's knowledge or human reasoning, not God's knowledge, automatically convince unbelievers of the gospel? As this passage explains, the crucifixion of the Messiah and the resurrection, they seem ridiculous to the human mind. And therefore, does this passage mean that logic and human reasoning are not valuable? Of course not. I myself make logic, apologetics, a role in my ministry when possible, but it also means that we can't change human desires, we can't change the heart, or make someone fall in love with God by human intellect alone. Let's reflect on this some, again. What ways do we polish up the gospel to try to make it more palatable for others, but actually lose its power? These are some things that I've been thinking about in my own outreach. Do we ever de-emphasize Jesus' identity as Lord, as King, as Master? Do we ever de-emphasize our sinfulness against God? Do we ever de-emphasize God's wrath towards sin? Do we ever de-emphasize God's initiative and mercy in calling us to see Christ? Or do we ever overemphasize our human role in God's plan? Or overemphasize our role in the advance of the gospel? Or overemphasize our belief in Jesus? Or our ability to follow Jesus faithfully in our Christian lives? All of these run the risk of giving credit to humans where it belongs to God alone. As Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So when you approach others with the gospel, whether it's coworkers, friends, or family, or even your children, is your approach based on the power of human persuasion, or is it based in reliance on God's power and mercy and for his glory? Our last section here is verse 26 through 31, and I've titled this, God subverts human wisdom so he gets the glory. So verse 26, Paul's actually going to go a slightly different direction. He's now going to focus in this magnifying glass on the church in Corinth. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So Paul here is showing that just as the gospel message and he the messenger were seen as foolish or weak by the world's standards, most of the believers in Corinth are too. Paul explains here that God chose these Corinthian Christians out of the other peoples and despite they're a low assessment from other humans, not because of their own accomplishments. Now in verse 27 and 28, Paul's going to widen out this lens again to show that this is the way that God works out throughout the world. It's not just a single individual setting for the Corinthian church. God chooses the most unlikely candidates everywhere. Verse 27 through 28 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. What's God doing here? He's reversing our human expectations. This is something that Jesus talked about in Matthew 19, where Jesus says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. God is fulfilling his purposes. He's embarrassing the world by turning the world's wisdom into foolishness and the world's strength into weakness. We may ask, why does God do this? Next verse. Verse 29 says, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God destroy any basis for humans to take credit for themselves? So he gets the glory. Verse 30 will continue. Because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Paul again is focusing on the Corinthian church here. He's referring to those whom God has called, and he's pointing out that God's role as a source of their union with Jesus has also had results, and that Paul is highlighting that Jesus not only is this revealed embodiment of God's wisdom and power, right? The wisdom and power of God is shown through Jesus, but also Jesus became to us wisdom. God's wisdom to us is in the form of Jesus, Paul also defines here what he means by wisdom. By wisdom, Paul is in mind these effects of the gospel, these effects of God's work of salvation through Jesus' crucifixion. So, try to think through this. We're going to go through several different points here. In verse 30, it says that Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. These are some big words, and so we're going to unpack these a little bit. John MacArthur wrote a commentary on this book, and I'm relying heavily on his his thoughts here. Um, But in saving people through the gospel, he says that God not only has a purpose for himself in receiving glory, but also a purpose for those who are saved. And four of these purposes are mentioned in verse 30. In Jesus, first of all, believers are given God's wisdom. So not only are we saved by God's wisdom, but we are also given God's wisdom to replace our own wisdom. And now this wisdom is expounded on, especially God's wisdom in our salvation. So believers are given God's righteousness, and not only are we made right with God, but we participate in his righteousness. Again, another aspect of God's wisdom at work. Believers are given God's sanctification, So not only are we set apart and made holy, but we actually receive Christ's nature and have new life in the Spirit. See 2 Corinthians 3.18 for that. And finally, God shows his wisdom also since believers are given God's redemption. And not only has God has bought us back from our sin, but Christ is actually given as a pledge to us as our inheritance. And through Christ... Ephesians 1 says that God has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So, now in the last verse, in verse 31, 
Paul is going to respond to this truth by giving God all the credit. He says, So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, this quote came from Jeremiah 9, 23-24. Paul is referencing this passage where it says, you have the quote from Jeremiah 9? There you go. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God is planting his flag on the earth to claim it for himself, saying that he gets the glory for his wisdom and his power, and he's expressing it to us now most clearly in his own son, Jesus. So to spend some time reflecting on these last several verses, 26 through 31, we're going to think back about God's calling people to Christ, how he is doing this with his glory in mind, and God is going to reverse those human expectations and flipping the script on us humans and our weight, our things that we value and the things that we put emphasis on. When God came up with his plan of the gospel, he intended to use it to shame the world. In Matthew 11, verse 25 through 27, Jesus offered this prayer to the Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him." Do you consider yourself weak, outcast? Do you consider yourself despised or socially unaccepted? God is in the business of saving people like you. God favors showing mercy to those who can claim no merit of their own. And God gives these people spiritual eyes to see the wisdom found in Christ. The reason God shows this kind of favoritism in showing mercy toward the undeserving is so that no one can boast and only God gets the credit. This tendency has all kinds of interesting possibilities. It means that a murderer on death row may be more likely to trust Christ than the winner of a Nobel Peace Prize. It means that an immigrant working a minimum wage job may be more likely to trust Christ than a CEO. It also means that a desperate prodigal may be more likely to receive God's mercy than a dutiful son. And, thinking back to the Christmas story, a shepherd outside Bethlehem may be more likely than a king. But I think it's important to keep in mind that low status itself is not the only factor that matters to God when he's showing mercy. God's salvation is still open to the wise and powerful, but he often humbles them publicly. 
So if you remember, God actually showed mercy to King Nebuchadnezzar, the same king that destroyed Jerusalem and wiped out his holy people from the promised land. He showed mercy to him, but in order for God to get the glory, what did he do? He humbled him. He made him eat straw like an ox, live like a wild animal for a long period of time so that God got the glory. God also chose to reveal himself to Paul, a self-righteous Pharisee. And in order for God to get the glory, God humbled Paul by making him suffer for the name of Christ. And I want to also clarify that we're talking about God's mercy. We're not talking about God's justice here. God's punishment rightly falls on all of us humans because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even the marginalized, God does not let them off the hook for their sins. For example, maybe they will covet what the rich or the powerful have. Or maybe they will pridefully think that they deserve more than their lot in life. God's mercy in saving sinners goes to those who are humbled and those who are desperate so that God will get the glory. As James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You might be wondering why I picked this passage for today. This passage was an impactful set of verses during my time in high school. For a season of life, I felt especially as an outcast from my high school, from friends, from society. And this passage came alive to me. God showed me mercy, and that's what made this passage come alive. And Christ is alive, and God's power and wisdom lives in him. And so I want you to think, how can these verses be an encouragement to you in your current situation in life? I also want to think about our church body here. Since God shows mercy in this way, often to the marginalized, I would say that First Street Bible Church is actually the polar opposite of the church in Corinth in many ways. The church in Corinth struggled with lots of different things. We don't struggle with overt immorality the way the church in Corinth did. We don't struggle with ignorance of God's word, and we don't struggle with factions that I'm aware of. But not only that, but we're not a church that is seen to the outside world as marginalized. We're not seen as people who are socially outcasts. Actually, within the Lincoln community, I think we at First Street Bible Church are actually seen as a people that have, for the most part, respectable lives. This is not a bad thing, but it also means that if God still operates the same way he did 2,000 years ago, and God doesn't change, the same basic principles apply, and we are actually an outlier from most of God's way of operating throughout history and throughout the world in true church. The true church is different than First Street. Not, I want to say that differently. First Street is different in many ways from what the global church has been historically. It's not likely that this is going to continue forever. So, are we, the members of First Street Bible Church, willing to sacrifice our reputations, our social standing, our wealth, our influence, to make our devotion to Jesus more widely known or impactful? And what sacrifices are we prepared to make to live distinctly as Christians and to proclaim Christ as the world becomes more hostile to the gospel? 
I want to spend the last few minutes here reflecting on God's glory. This chapter closes with an emphasis on God's glory and salvation specifically. Why did God design the gospel in this way? He could have done it anyway, but he did it so he gets the credit. Let's think more about this theme as we close at our time. Isaiah 45, 22 through 23 says, God, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance." We may think that God receiving the glory is bad for us. There is no reason to think this. John Piper has a quote that I want to read for you. When he was going through this passage, he said, God loves us, and he loves us so much that he will not let us diminish that love by exalting ourselves in his presence. He will not let us ruin the glorious experience of being loved by turning God's love in a reason for us to boast in ourselves? Be honest. How often do you take credit for something that belongs to God alone? Do you prize your own intelligence? If you're like me, your critical thinking skills. Your success, your wealth, abilities, education, even your knowledge of God's word. That can be a huge temptation Maybe this is a more convicting way of thinking about it. Are you a smug person? To be honest, I struggle with this one a lot myself. Do you tend to think about yourself and your abilities and your accomplishments and compare yourself with others? Perhaps one of the greatest struggles for us Christians is allowing our hearts to adopt a smug attitude, thinking Am I God's, God's child because I was more noble? Maybe. More open-minded, more better, critical at, better at critical thinking. Maybe I'm more compassionate than this person. Maybe I'm more sensitive to morality than the unbelievers around us. God destroys this kind of thinking by making our calling to Christ dependent not on us, but on him. Verse 28 says, that God chose what is weak and despised so that no one, no human being might boast in the presence of God. Jesus is our only claim to true wisdom and true righteousness and true sanctification and true redemption. If you have not come to know Jesus in this way, talk to one of the elders here. God's invitation of salvation is open to everyone. It's open to all. Today is the day of salvation. Throughout this work of salvation, remember, God gets all the credit, he initiates the process, and he's going to provide us the power to complete it. As verse 31 says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Father God, I thank you that we have the opportunity to see you for your love, for your compassion, and for your wisdom. I pray that you would not let us take glory for ourselves, but that you would get all the glory for our lives, for those around us, from all time and forevermore. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.